Crime Salad listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And this week, we have three lovely patrons to shout out. Ricky, can you mention our patrons? Yep. So this week, we have Jenny, Annie, and Carrie. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for supporting Crime Salad. We really, really appreciate it. Enjoy the ad-free listens. Now, before we jump in, we would like to send our thoughts and prayers to the Florida residents and hope that they can get back to their normal soon after Hurricane Ian. At the time of recording this episode, lots of communities are experiencing flooding and no power. And I just read in the news that 2.5 million residents are without power. So, Florida, we are thinking about you. And speaking about Florida, we are actually going to take a trip there in this episode, specifically to the beautiful residential community Durban Crossing, which is located in the heart of St. John's County near Jacksonville Beach, Florida. It's an idyllic master-planned community that is huge in a place that basically has everything you can imagine. It includes pools, fitness centers, splash pads, volleyball courts, tennis courts, basketball courts, and playgrounds with access to nearby downtown shopping centers. The motto of Durban Crossing is welcome to the good life. One child living the good life in Durban Crossing was 13-year-old Tristan Bailey, who was in the seventh grade at the nearby Patriot Oaks Academy. Tristan was one of five children of the Bailey family, headed up by mom, Stacy, and dad, Forrest Bailey. From very young, Tristan's interest centered around tumbling, gymnastics, and cheerleading. In fact, in May of 2021, Tristan was on three cheerleading squads, one at school and two competitive traveling teams. Tristan was a popular girl with a close-knit group of friends who described her as kind, silly, funny, and fierce. So everyone was taken off guard when Tristan was nowhere to be found on Mother's Day morning in 2021. On that Mother's Day morning, all of Tristan's siblings were up early planning to make their mom breakfast in bed, except for Tristan. They assumed Tristan was sleeping in late that day. So her sister went into her room around 9.30 in the morning to wake her up and was surprised to find her room was empty and her bed hadn't been slept in. That's weird. She's not in her room. It looks like she didn't even sleep there. So they search the house and call her phone and her phone goes to voicemail. They informed their father, Forrest Bailey, that Tristan was missing. He goes to the amenity center in their housing development to see if maybe Tristan was there hanging out with her friends, but the place was empty. He also tried calling a few of her friends, but none of them had heard from her. And so around 10 a.m. on a day where families honor their mothers and show appreciation, Tristan's mom was instead reporting her daughter missing. On the 911 call, Stacy Bailey described her daughter as having blonde hair with blue eyes, 5'4 and 130 pounds. She told the operator that the last time anyone had seen Tristan was at midnight the night before by one of Tristan's older sisters. She said to her knowledge, Tristan had never snuck out of the house before, had never self-harmed and wasn't on any medication. She said lately that Tristan had been standoffish, but wasn't the type of kid to want to or need to run away for any reason. 
Most importantly, she reported that Tristan didn't have a boyfriend. However, Tristan's sister caught her in the garage late the night before talking to a boy who was wearing a white baseball cap backwards on his head. What her sister didn't know was it was Tristan's first attempt at sneaking out that night. Tristan's dad had access to her phone records since he was the primary account holder, and the phone records indicated the last person she spoke with was an older boy who went to her school. So, of course, Tristan's dad called this number, but the boy didn't have any helpful information to offer. But that would soon change. So now that the police were informed, the sheriff's department mobilized quickly and got the word out that Tristan was missing. They issued a missing child alert and deputies along with family and friends immediately began searching for Tristan. One of the earliest tips was from a man who was a father named Doffus Absher. His son, Dolphus Absher III, or Trey, as he was known by family and friends, reported that Tristan had been in his home the night before and had left in the early morning hours of May 9th with another one of Trey's friends, Aiden Fucci. And this is where the tip gets pretty interesting. Trey told officers that he was grounded for the weekend because he got suspended from school. He wasn't allowed to have anyone over, but he knew how to sneak kids into his room and avoid the family's surveillance cameras. Trey and Aiden were both in the 8th grade and had recently became friends with Tristan, who was in 7th grade. Aiden had been at Trey's house all night, and after playing video games, they wanted Tristan to come over and hang out. Aiden had a girlfriend, but he also recently expressed interest in Tristan. He encouraged Tristan to sneak out of her home and come to the north side of Trey's house to avoid the cameras. Trey told officers that Tristan arrived around 12.30 a.m. and Aiden and Tristan had left together around 1.10 a.m. Trey believed that Aiden and Tristan had parted ways halfway home with Aiden going directly home and Tristan heading to the amenity center to meet up with her, quote, drug dealer, end quote. The drug dealer was allegedly a 22-year-old named Carlo. Now, at this time, it was clear to the officers that Trey was holding back information, but realized that they needed to talk to this other kid, Aiden Fucci, immediately and hear his side of the story. And so Deputy Maloney went directly to Aiden's house, where he lived with his mother, Crystal Smith, and his stepfather, Michael Akel. With permission of Aiden's mother, he showed the officers where he and Tristan went after leaving Trey's home. According to Aiden, they went to the north side of Durban Parkway, and he left her at the turn into her street before heading to his own home, where he arrived at 3 a.m. Deputy Maloney told Aiden that his timeline didn't match up with Trey's statement. He said the two left his house around 1.10 a.m., and it doesn't take two hours to walk the 1.5 miles home. So that's when Aiden changed his story. He told the officers that he and Tristan got into an argument on the way home when Tristan tried to grab his penis. This embarrassed Aiden and made him angry, so he forcefully pushed her to the ground, which caused her to strike her head. He told her to fuck off and didn't look back to see if she was okay. 
But then he slightly changed his story again and said that he wasn't sure if he looked back or not because he was slightly dizzy from smoking marijuana earlier at Trey's house. He told officers that he was upset by Tristan's actions, so he walked around alone for a while before finally going home at 3 a.m. But interior surveillance cameras inside the home actually showed that he arrived at 3.32 a.m. So what was Aiden doing for those two and a half hours? Aiden now had given Deputy Malone three different versions of what happened that evening. And maybe the last version of how he hit her after being embarrassed was a little closer to the truth than the other stories he and Trey came up with. But the officer suspected that something terrible had happened to Tristan and Aiden was his number one suspect. And as a result, he read Aiden his constitutional rights to remain silent or what is more commonly referred to as a Miranda warning. And as a result, Aiden invoked his rights to remain silent and declined to provide any further statement. That's when Aiden was returned to the custody of his parents. There, Detective Kimberly Peluso from the Special Victims Unit arrived and began asking Aiden if he had any theories on where Tristan could be. And Aiden told her that he believed Tristan could be with a drug dealer who was in his 20s and communicated with some of the kids through the Snapchat app. He suggested that Detective Peluso talk to a girl named Shyla, who was one of Tristan's close friends. He believed that Shyla knew how to get a hold of Carlo, the drug dealer. Now, Detective Peluso talked to Trey too, who also had some new and different details from the earlier morning hours when Tristan was last seen. Trey now said that Tristan arrived at his house at 12.30 a.m., but didn't stay long before leaving with Aiden. Trey stated that Aiden dropped Tristan off at the front of her neighborhood and continued walking to his own home. Trey theorized that Tristan probably got caught outside by her sister and ran off to go meet with her drug dealer, Carlo. Trey thought it was likely that Tristan was fine and probably high and hanging out with friends. Now, by 3 o'clock p.m. on Mother's Day, police made contact with the father of two of Tristan's friends. The drug dealer's story had traveled fast among the friend group. That father told officers that he, too, heard that Tristan had snuck out in the middle of the night to hang out at the Northside Amenity Center with two boys and a 22-year-old drug dealer named Carlo. He had heard from his daughters that the boys went home and Tristan and Carlo stayed behind. Of course, this was based on the rumor that Aiden started himself early that morning when he first told Trey the 22-year-old drug dealer's story. And then there was the video footage from the amenity center, which contradicted the story that was rapidly spreading throughout the neighborhood rumor mill. The footage showed two figures walking past the center at 1.14 a.m., and later it would be determined that those two figures were Aiden and Tristan. The detectives on the case had dozens of rumors to contend all within the first few hours of Tristan's disappearance. Almost all of the stories gave a version of the Carlo story with embellishments that Tristan had plans to return with him because she was concerned about being caught with some fictional illegal activity. 
By 6 o'clock p.m., a 911 call came in from Durban Crossing resident Daniel Hart. Mr. Hart had been jogging in the area and had heard of the missing girl earlier in the day. And before heading home, he decided to take a detour and conduct his own search. It was about 80 feet into a wooded area near a retention pond and a nursery where he saw the body of a teen girl. The body was lying on her side, and her former blonde hair was now blood red. She was wearing a black Victoria's Secret shirt with the word pink on the front, with black Nike brand sweatpants and white and black checkered slip-on shoes, which were the Vans brand. She had multiple sharp force entry wounds on her hands, arms, neck, and back. The body was quickly identified. Tristan had been found. So, given the location of the wounds, it appeared that Tristan had been on her stomach while she was attacked. Someone sat on her while she clasped her hands around the back of her head to protect it from a knife attack. She sustained stab wounds that went clear through her hands and into her skull. It was clear that this was a situation of rage and overkill. There was also bruising on the inside of her legs and thighs, which indicated a failed attempt at sexual assault. Someone also written the word karma on her ankle in blue ink, and later the medical examiner would determine that Tristan had been stabbed 114 times in her head, neck, hands, arms, and back. And the tip of the knife had actually broken off into her skull, which is something that happens quite frequently in sustained knife attacks. Tristan's case just switched from a missing person to a homicide investigation. Police taped off the area and found a gold-toned ring, a $20 bill, and a pink vape pen that would later be determined to belong to Tristan. There was also a Powerade bottle at the scene that held no evidentiary value. Her cell phone was found near her body, which no longer appeared to be in any working order, which explains why it was no longer giving off any signal on any of the tracking apps or pinging off any nearby cell phone towers. Early in the investigation, investigators knew that they needed to talk to Trey and Aiden in an interrogation room. But with Tristan's body having been found, the FDLE, which stands for Florida Department of Law Enforcement, began serving search warrants on several residences, including Aiden's home, Trey's home, Tristan's home, and several other pertinent addresses. With parental permission, law enforcement transported the boys to the police station for a more in-depth interview. Although their families had both stated they would have attorneys meet them at the police station. The boys were transported together in a police car which had video cameras. Usually suspects are separated, but they were intentionally placed in the car together to see if they would make any spontaneous attempts to synchronize their stories or create alibis for each other. Both the boys appeared to be excited by the investigation and their predicament in the back of a police car. While inside the car, Aiden took a photo which quickly went viral. The photo was a selfie in the backseat of the police car flashing a peace sign, and he posted it on Snapchat with the title, Hey guys, has anybody seen Tristan lately? The smirk on his face from inside the police car made it clear he felt untouchable and he was treating his encounter with law enforcement as a joke or a mere formality. 
his snap message was forwarded twice by friends. One said, WTF, Aiden, and the other said, you were with her, Aiden. You know what happened to her. Rumors and gossip was spreading fast among Tristan's classmates, and they decided that Aiden was responsible. There are reasons for this, which we will get into a little later in this episode. Now, before they placed Aiden in the police car, officers patted him down and found a navy blue buck knife in his pocket. Since he wasn't under suspicion at the time, they gave the knife to his stepfather, Michael Akel. Later, after the officers became aware that Tristan had been found, they tried to retrieve the knife. However, Mr. Akel stated he left it on the bumper of his car after talking to the officers and it must have fallen off. All attempts to find it were unsuccessful. Once Aiden arrived at the police station, he was placed inside an interview room with his father, Jason Fucci, and his mother, Crystal Smith. Since Aiden was a minor, they had the right to be present while they waited for Aiden's attorney to arrive. However, the interrogation room had both audio and video recording equipment. As soon as they entered the room, Crystal told Aiden that they were being recorded and not to say anything until the attorney arrived. However, she didn't heed her own advice. While in the room, both Jason and Crystal asked Aiden questions. Crystal began by telling Aiden that Tristan had been found. Aiden asked, is she good? To which his mother replied that she was dead and that's why this entire thing was on him now. Aiden asked, how is it my problem? His mother told him since he was the last person to see her alive, that he was their main suspect, especially because of the picture he sent in the back of the police car. She told him that as a result of that Snapchat, their family was now receiving death threats and their entire community believed Aiden was involved in Tristan's murder. She also told Aiden about the two videos that had been released to the public. In one, you can see two figures walking together and heading towards the pond where Tristan's body was later found. A few hours later, you can see another figure running back alone, carrying a white pair of high-top Nike athletic shoes with a black Nike logo. Now, at the time of this video, it was dark, and the video wasn't sharp enough to identify either of the two people walking and running. But Aiden took care of that problem by confirming it was him running back in the second video. When his dad asked why he was carrying his shoes, he said because the shoes had given him blisters on his feet. Aiden's dad now asked him if he had any scrapes or bruises on his body, to which he responded, no, sir. Aiden spontaneously told his dad that Tristan probably got picked up by her drug dealer and had never intended to go home and was looking for somewhere to stay because her sister had caught her trying to sneak out. Crystal continued asking questions about Tristan's plans that night when Aiden offered the information that he had pushed Tristan down and kept walking without her. That's when Aiden's dad reminded both of them that they shouldn't be discussing anything inside the room since they were being recorded. Then again, ignoring his own advice, he asked Aiden if he had kissed Tristan, which Aiden confirmed. This concerned Aiden's father as he worried that Tristan's body would now have Aiden's DNA on it. Both parents were worried that the police would find something back at the house, which was simultaneously being searched. Crystal seemed concerned that something found in the search might cause them to keep Aiden overnight. 
They were right to worry because there would be plenty to find, which Crystal was already well aware of. Aiden told his father that he doubted he was going to be home that night and stated, I know I'm staying here. Jason Fucci began typing something into his texting app, and then he and Aiden passed the phone back and forth after typing into the device. It was clear he was trying to communicate with Aiden and subvert the audio and video equipment in the room. Crystal asked Aiden if he smoked pot that night and said, I'm just trying to think if you did something stupid, maybe something made you do it that would justify it. Aiden replied that he had only smoked CBD oil, which didn't get him high. Then Crystal told Aiden that the police were going to want to find his clothing that he wore the night before and take it for testing. Crystal asked Aiden if he were wearing khakis or blue jeans, and Aiden replied, blue jeans. Then Crystal asked if there was anything on the jeans and mouthed the words blood to Aiden with a questioning look. As Crystal began connecting the dots in her head, she tried to change the narrative. She told Aiden, when we looked at the inside cameras, you were wearing khakis, right? Right, Aiden? Aiden caught on quickly and confirmed that he was wearing khakis. Crystal began questioning why he pushed Tristan, and he said that it was because she tried to grab his penis, which made him angry. Crystal told Aiden to find his story and stick with it. Then Crystal began discussing all the evidence she was worried they would find during Tristan's autopsy. They asked Aiden why it took him so long to get home, and Aiden explained that he was walking around and looking at the stars. That's when law enforcement entered the room and asked Crystal and Jason to speak with them outside the room. Because of Aiden's admission that it was him on the video holding his shoes, they now had probable cause to hold him on a charge of second-degree murder. Crystal and Jason walk back into the interrogation video clearly crying. They explained to Aiden that he would be staying the night and cautioned him again that the room was recording and not to say anything. Now, it turns out police did in fact find quite a bit of evidence at Aiden's home, including one wet white pair of Nike brand high top athletic shoes with visible blood on the shoes hidden behind Aiden's dresser. They also found a wet white t-shirt with possible blood also located under the dresser. They also found a pair of wet blue denim jeans located inside of the laundry basket in Aiden's room. They too had signs of blood on them. They also seized footage from inside of Aiden's home from the night Tristan disappeared up to the time when the search warrants were served, which was less than 18 hours. They also seized eight pocket knives and one homemade shank from Aiden's room. While the house was being searched, FDLE also searched the pond near Tristan's body. There, divers found a Buck brand folding knife with a wood and brass handle. The tip of the knife was missing, and the knife looked bent and fractured. The surveillance video from inside Aiden's home was also very telling. It showed that Aiden returned home at 3.32 a.m. on the morning of May 9th, 2021. He was still carrying his white Nike high-top shoes. He was wearing blue jeans and a light-colored sweatshirt. Aiden went directly to his bedroom and then exited shortly thereafter wearing a bathrobe. Then Aiden was captured again sitting on the stair landing using his cell phone. 
Then the camera showed Aiden, Crystal, and her husband, Michael Akel, on the front porch speaking to Deputy Maloney for a period of time. After Aiden leaves with Deputy Maloney, Michael Akel and his cousin, Andy Akel, follow Maloney's patrol car. Crystal remained on the front porch talking on her phone for approximately 20 minutes. And after she ends her phone call, you can see her place the dog inside the master bedroom. Then she goes upstairs to Aiden's bathroom and picks up something off the floor and takes it inside Aiden's bedroom. Then she exits Aiden's room holding a pair of jeans which she takes back into Aiden's bathroom. There, the interior surveillance camera captures Crystal scrubbing the jeans in the bathroom sink. Then Crystal takes the jeans downstairs into the master bedroom. Then Victoria Akel enters the video, which is Michael's cousin. Crystal shows her the jeans and they both appear to be looking at the jeans and closely examining them. Then Crystal puts the jeans back inside the master bedroom and comes back out without them and continues her discussion with Victoria. Michael and Andy both return to the residence. Michael goes back into the master bedroom with Crystal and 20 minutes later, they both exit and Crystal returns the jeans back to Aiden's bedroom. I'm so curious to know what was going through her head at the time as she was seen cleaning the blood from his jeans. While Aiden was in an interrogation room at police headquarters, Trey was separated from him and placed in his own interrogation room. Trey had both his father and a private attorney present. And at this point, police weren't sure if Aiden acted alone or if both boys had planned to lure Tristan over together for nefarious purposes. Trey told law enforcement that he had first met Aiden at the beginning of the school year, and the two immediately became fast friends, hanging out together almost every day. Often, Aiden would invite his girlfriend, Zophie, to hang out as well. He described Aiden as someone who was super chill and didn't seem to care about anything or anyone unless someone really tried to make him angry. Trey recalled an instance where Aiden pulled out his knife and made statements that scared Zophie into believing that he intended to kill her. He also described Aiden as a big pothead who was obsessed with always being high. Aiden also talked a lot about death and his own desire to kill someone. You know, normal teenage stuff. Trey explained that he had a big interest in boxing and called boxing his crush, while Aiden's, quote, crush was killing people. According to the friend Trey, Aiden often made comments about his desire to stab people or slit their throats and watch them flail and bleed to death. That's some strange desire. But Trey never took any of these comments seriously and believed it was just the way that Aiden coped with the stress of his tumultuous home life. When shown the photo of the knife recovered from the pond, Trey identified it as belonging to Aiden and being his favorite knife, which he had named Poker. Now, according to Trey, he didn't know Tristan well, but she had been to his home on two or three prior occasions with other friends. He told officers that Aiden had expressed a previous desire to, quote, move in on Tristan, but he stopped himself because he had a girlfriend. Trey did think it was possible that Tristan did have an interest in Aiden, and that's why she was willing to risk getting in trouble and sneak out on the fateful night when she disappeared. Aiden would often fantasize out loud about slitting someone's throat and saying, quote, 
It would be satisfying to watch the blood drain out from their body and the life drain from their eyes, end quote. Whenever Aiden spoke about fighting people or hurting people, he would make stabbing motions with either his knife or his hand. Trey told officers that when Tristan arrived at his home, she was upset and worried that her sister had caught her sneaking out, and she allegedly made the comment several times that she wanted to run away. When Trey made this statement to officers, he had no idea that Tristan's body had been found. So he was still trying to float on the Tristan ran away with an older drug dealer named Carlo story, which no longer interested officers. On the night Tristan came over, Trey had fallen asleep and then woken up around 1.10 a.m., telling Tristan and Aiden they both needed to leave, which they did together. That morning when Trey discovered that Tristan was missing, he FaceTimed Aiden, who told him that he left her in front of her neighborhood. When Trey told him that law enforcement was on his way to his house to get his statement, he saw a flash of panic cross over Aiden's face. Almost everything Trey told officers would be corroborated by other witnesses. So even though Aiden had been arrested, the investigation continued. Detective Newman met with one of Tristan's friends named Shyla. Shyla told Detective Newman that she and Tristan were very close friends, but mostly talked at school. She stated that Tristan had recently begun hanging out with a different group of people who were a bad influence. She stated that recently, the group including Tristan had caused graffiti damage to the North Durban Crossing sign and had scribbled her name on the sign. She said that Tristan had tried to obscure the name by writing over it, but was worried that she would get caught. Shyla also told Detective Newman that recently, Tristan had talked about running away from home and asked if she could stay at Shyla's house. She said she didn't talk to Trey or Aiden very much at school because they were in different grades. However, she had very strong opinions about both of them. She told detectives that she didn't like Aiden at all and described him as a bad kid who was, quote, the textbook definition of what you would call a numb kid. He had no feelings towards anything, no feelings towards himself. His eyes appeared glossy as if they lacked meaning and he is the type of person you would see as a murderer. He just didn't care about anyone, end quote. She told Detective Newman that Aiden was a pothead and he liked to take girls into the woods to smoke pot and vape. Apparently, Tristan had told Shyla that she was going to hang out with Trey and Aiden on Friday night, but didn't want Shyla to come along because she had a bad feeling about it. She also knew that Tristan, Trey, Aiden, and Aiden's girlfriend named Zofie were planning to hang out over the weekend and get high. And next, Detective Newman went to interview Zofie Bowman, who had been identified by several people as Aiden's girlfriend. Zofie was in the eighth grade at Patriots Oaks Academy along with Trey and Aiden. She confirmed that she and Aiden were in an exclusive dating relationship. She told Detective Newman that Aiden had severe anger issues, which would often cause him to destroy property or throw things. She told him about an incident where Aiden was going to buy a vape from another kid, but instead he beat the kid up and took the vape from him forcefully. She also said that Aiden was obsessed with knives and always carried at least one knife with him at all times. His two favorite knives he had names for. He called them Picker and Poker. 
Picker was a black and gray folding knife with an orange skull on the handle and had a scary serrated blade. It was his favorite. Unfortunately, it broke, so he left it at Zofie's house. His second favorite knife was poker, and it was a classic buck knife that would turn out to be the murder weapon. Detective Newman was surprised to hear that Aiden frequently talked about killing people and by how casually Zofie shared this information, as if it were perfectly normal. Aiden would often take his knife and pretend to stab Zofie for fun and tell her he was going to kill her with it. Sometimes he would surprise her by coming up behind her and pretending to slit her throat with his knife. A few weeks earlier, Zofie and Aiden were on the roof of her house doing normal early tween teen things like looking at the stars and dream of their futures. Zofie's dreams included romantic things like a future with Aiden. However, Aiden's dreams involved him excitedly telling her of his plans to kill someone, and soon. He promised that in the next 30 days, he would have his first kill. Aiden planned to find a random person walking at night and drag them into the woods and stab them to death. Then he planned to act innocent after the murder and continue killing people until someone became suspicious. Only then would he leave town, change his name, and continue killing people while traveling. Surprisingly, these dreams never alarmed Zofie, at least not enough to tell someone or even distance herself from Aiden. She also knew he liked to draw disturbing images of women with red bloody X's over their breasts and in various stages of dismemberment. All of his drawings were disturbing and depicted mutilated bodies. Allegedly, Aiden told her that he knew something was wrong with himself, but he didn't think he could be fixed, and he didn't know how to ask for help. Aiden confided in Zofie that he would hear voices in his head when he was angry that told him he was a worthless disappointment and all he would ever be good at was killing people. In fact, these voices were the reason Aiden liked to smoke so much marijuana because when he was high, he could quiet the voices in his head. He didn't believe his family could be trusted with his secret, nor would they get him help. He was worried it would cause them to abandon him and place him in an insane asylum. He felt like he had no one he could trust with his heavy burden. While Aiden was in the back of the police car, he texted Zofie and told her that he thought he probably would be arrested soon, but he wasn't too worried about it because he had a plan to plead the fifth. Following Aiden's arrest, the DA's office vowed to charge him as an adult. As a result, he convened a grand jury who indicted Aiden as an adult in the first-degree murder of Tristan Bailey, but they weren't done with the charges. Aiden's mother, Crystal, was also charged with tampering with evidence in the case for trying to wash out the blood from her son's genes. She was also charged with trying to subvert the investigation during the time she was in the interrogation room with Aiden and coached him into lying about what he was wearing the night Tristan was murdered. If you remember, that was the discussion about the khakis or the blue jeans. In a statement, the DA's office stated that they were determined to, quote, ensure property accountability across the board for a successful prosecution, end quote. During a press conference, the DA stated that, quote, it brings me no pleasure to be charging a 14-year-old as an adult with first-degree murder, but I can also tell you the executive team and I reviewed all the facts, all the circumstances, 
the applicable law, and it was not a difficult decision to make that he should be charged as an adult, end quote. He asked a rhetorical question and said, quote, could this have been prevented? We can't be sure. This case should serve as a cautionary tale to parents that they need to know what your kids are doing and saying. It would be an understatement to describe Tristan's murder as horrific. She was fighting for her life. It just is sad that we have to talk about that, end quote. But that's not where this case ends. During a pretrial hearing via Zoom, it appeared that Aiden's mental health had deteriorated further while being incarcerated. During the hearing, his eyes continued to rapidly dart around as if he's trying to follow something above his head. As a result of this behavior, the hearing was postponed. It's likely there will be a motion in the future for a competency hearing or perhaps a defense that includes diminished capacity by mental defect. We'll just have to wait and see. The trial in this case is currently scheduled for February of 2023 and will take an estimated two to three weeks to complete. In the meantime, the Bailey family have honored their daughter's memory with community activism and a scholarship fund in Tristan's name. The Bailey family gave a statement that said, quote, as a family, we continue to be devastated and overcome with grief at the loss of Tristan. With time, we are learning to deal with carrying this loss forward. We draw our greatest strengths from our love of Tristan and seek to honor her memory in line with her spirit, end quote. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.